audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. The text this morning is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. It's good to see uh, a lot of y'all back. I hope travel last weekend was good for you. And uh, yeah, it's, it's good to see you. I want to say welcome to any guests we have with us. It's um, good to see you as well. I'm grateful you're here. Uh, I'd love to meet you after the service. So don't sneak out, um, or I'll go stand at the door and wait for you. Um, so this week, uh, this past week, I preached at a camp um, for Shades Mountain Baptist Church, their youth group uh, in Ocoee, Tennessee, and got back last night at like 11 o'clock. So I'm running on fumes, uh, but the Spirit is going to be kind to us this morning. Um, and this week, we're starting a sermon series, taking a break from 1 Samuel starting a sermon series on God is our shepherd, and we as the, are the sheep of his pasture, as Psalm 95 tells us. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God is our shepherd and that we are his sheep? So we're going to be unpacking a variety of texts, uh, looking at that. And obviously this week, as we just read, our text is Psalm chapter 23, probably the most famous psalm in all of the psalms. I mean, most people have heard Psalm 23. Most non-Christians know some parts of Psalm 23. It's very, very well known. And it makes me think about the power of, of images. You know, a, a well-captured image or picture it can communicate something extremely powerful, right? Something extremely uh, moving, whether it be a photo or a painting or a piece of graphic design or even a good metaphor, like a word image. Images can sometimes evoke in us emotions that you know, simple word descriptions oftentimes cannot. I mean, we have whole awards that are given to men and women who are able to capture images, create images that communicate powerful things. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. So look at the screen. This first image here. That picture right there, the image, uh, was from September 11, 2001. Uh, the person that took that picture, Ruth Frimson, she's a photographer from the New York Times. She won a Pulitzer Prize for capturing this photo in the aftermath of 9-11. I know when we see images like this revolving around 9-11, it evokes in us all kinds of emotions. I mean, I remember where I was on September 11, 2001, as maybe many of you can remember where you were. Sophomore year in high school, I remember the day, the day just stopped, uh, just stopped, and it stopped for a lot of us. Maybe multiple days stopped for some of us. You know, I can remember more details about September 11, 2001 than I can my own wedding day, simply because those images are seared into my mind. I can't get them out. 
know, images are powerful, or this next image we have for you. That one right there. That one never won a Pulitzer Prize, but it's powerful nonetheless. I mean, Dr. King standing on the mall of Washington, D.C., giving his iconic I Have a Dream speech that we're all familiar with. And even that speech is full of images, right? I have a dream that all of God's children, white men, black men, Jews, Gentiles, Protestants, Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Images. This image capturing a speech full of images evokes in us something. We feel something when we see things like this. Or even this next image. This is a photo of a guy named Derek Redmond. Maybe you know, I've heard the story of Derek Redmond. It's pretty famous, but I know I'm, I'm kind of older here. Um, but 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain. Derek Redmond, seen here on the left, was a, a British Olympian, one of the favorites to win the 400-meter sprint that year in the Olympics. And obviously, Olympians train and train and train for this time, right, this moment. But in the semifinal, with about 250 meters to go, Derek Redmond uh, pulled his hamstring, tore his hamstring. It begins to hobble, it begins to pull up, and he starts crying as he sees his hopes for gold just begin to fade away and stretchers, they begin to come on the track. Before they're even able to get onto the track, you see this older man running onto the track. And it's Jim Redman, Derek's dad. And he comes next to Derek, and he carries him the remainder of the 250 meters across that finish line. It's a powerful, powerful image, powerful video, if you haven't seen the video, of his dad taking him the rest of the way as he finishes that race. It's powerful. Images are powerful. They evoke in us something. Now, Psalm 23 is a psalm of images. You know, in six verses in Psalm 23, David, the author, he gives us ten different images, ten, that are timeless, eternal truths about the nature and character of God. Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 23 the, the pearl of psalms. Now, Alexander McClare and another Scottish pastor, he called Psalm 23, he said, he said that it has dried many tears and supplied the mold into which many hearts have poured their peaceful faith. The psalm's been read at the birth of babies. It's been read at the death of saints. It's been remembered in times of plenty, and it's been prayed in times of want. And Psalm 23 is really unique you know, psalms are prayers, right? And prayer implies you're, ask, you're petitioning the Lord. You're asking the Lord for something. You know, and they, in the psalms, they can really take two forms. You know, oftentimes the prayers are entreaties that God would provide something or do something. Or many psalms in the Bible, on the other hand, second type, are laments. Prayers that God would restore, heal a broken heart. But not this psalm. There is no request for anything in Psalm chapter 23. There's no ask of anything. There's no lament over anything in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is just simply a, a, a psalm of confidence. It's a psalm for the saint. It's a psalm for the child of God to meditate upon in times where you need to remember that the Lord is present with those who are in need. Psalm 23 is an explicit demonstration 
of God's loyal love towards his people. And that demonstration is met with the delight of those who experience that love of their God. So for the remainder of our time together, I want us to walk through this psalm. And I just ask us just simply to meditate upon the character of God seen in all of these images. I want us to ask the Spirit of the Lord to take these images that David powerfully puts on paper and teach us about the heart of our God, the heart of our shepherd. And let the Spirit begin to stir up in us just the affections, the delight in the Lord that he has in us as his people. Preaching professor of mine said, one of the goals of preaching is to turn ears into eyes. And so I pray, I pray that we see with our ears this morning the gospel. So I've reduced these 10 images, really, I've reduced them down into five because some of them communicate the same thing. So we're going to take the 10, put them into five categories of images. And the first one is this. It's the image of a shepherd, a shepherd. And that truth communicates that God is our provision and our source of intimacy. Shepherd, provision and intimacy. Verse 1, right there in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know, for, a, uh, for an Israelite reader of that, the Lord, like Yahweh, like capital letters, L-O-R-D. When you see that in the Bibles, the L-O-R-D, all caps, that's the Yahweh. That's the, the covenant name of God being communicated there. Not Adonai, which is the regular name for Lord in the Old Testament. To see that Lord, Hebrew, all caps right there, uh, in English, all caps, in association with shepherd would have been pretty astounding. Because shepherds in ancient Israel were the lowest of the low in occupation. That's why David, the youngest, most insignificant son, is found shepherding his father's sheep back in 1 Samuel 16. Nobody cared about David. He's insignificant. He's young. Let's get the youngest, the weakest. Let's get him out there to keep care, take care of the sheep. Important people did not shepherd. It was a hard life. The shepherd was with the sheep 24 hours a day. Rain, shine, cold, hot. Summer, winter. I mean, all year long, you are out with dirty, nasty sheep taking care of them all day into the night. Smelly, gross, who knows what's all over the body of a shepherd underneath his sandals. Who knows? It's a disgusting job. But without a good shepherd, the sheep are doomed from the start. You know, this is where the truth of provision kind of comes into play. You know, one of the main tasks of shepherding was that the shepherd was to provide for the sheep. The sheep could not provide for themselves. If they didn't have a provider, they would die. Literally, they would die. But the shepherd needed to lead the sheep to places of provision and places of sustenance. And not only that, but in order to lead the sheep to the kind of sustenance that they needed, the shepherd would have to be intimately acquainted with the sheep to know what they actually needed. You know, I had a professor in seminary who grew up in Missouri, and his dad was a farmer. And one of the components of this farm is he had an, a massive amount of sheep. It's one of the main sources of income for him as a farmer. And one of the components, uh, and I remember, sorry, I remember my professor uh, talking about his dad's sheep. And he said that his father knew every single thing about each one of those sheep. Every single thing. 
He was so intimately acquainted with the sheep that he could tell when there was a slight weight adjustment in the sheep. They were losing weight or gaining weight. He could tell when one was walking differently than it normally did. He could spot blemishes on the skin of the sheep and know exactly what was going on with each individual sheep. And this intimacy with his sheep informed his father as to what each sheep needed for that day. And he would provide it as the shepherd. He probably wouldn't call himself a shepherd, but that's essentially what he was doing. You know, I think about the words of Jesus in John chapter 10 about this intimacy. You know, our our good shepherd, the shepherd made flesh, right? God made flesh. You know, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You know, the sheep of Christ's pasture, they know the shepherd's voice. And I think when we see Christ for the first time face to face and when we hear him speak, our hearts are going to be stirred up because that's a voice we're familiar with. We've already heard it our whole lives. And David is saying from the outset of this psalm that the majestic, unchanging, holy, set-apart God of all the universe, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, that he always fulfills his purposes, that he always brings people through, through his miracles, through his works, his mighty works, delivered them out of the exodus through plagues and overthrows pharaohs and kings and nations and armies with a word. That God, the Lord, the transcendent God of the universe, he is your shepherd. He humbles himself. He descends to us and leads us and guides us as our shepherd. And this God who is literally all resources at his disposal, he will give us and provide for us in ways that we never anticipated and that we will never be in want shall not want. You know, I've heard some really bad sermons on Psalm 23.1. The pastors that take this and twist it to just preach some false gospel of prosperity and progress and all kinds of just stupid stuff. The Lord will give you everything you want. You know, that he'll make your bank accounts full. Your bellies will always be full. He'll provide you with BMWs and big houses and all the things you could ever want because he doesn't want you to be in want. That's obviously a gross misunderstanding of this text. You know, what the shepherd, our Lord, fills us with is of more infinite value than anything that rusts, right? Anything that we're going to sell in five, six, seven years. Yeah, he'll provide what we need physically, but what we need may not be a four-bedroom, three-bath house and luxury vehicles. He hasn't promised that he'll maintain your cost of living. But he has promised to provide for you what you need physically. But not only that, but provide more importantly what you need spiritually. He provides us with himself. He gives us himself. We feast on him. He teaches us through his word. He gives us his own heart. Not only will he fill us quantitatively to the full, but he will fill us qualitatively with the best of the best of what our souls need. Which is namely his presence as our shepherd. So Yahweh, the Lord, is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's image number one. Image number two. 
We have green pastures and still waters and paths of righteousness. These three images really communicate one truth, and that's that God is a God of restoration and guidance. Restoration and guidance. Look at verses 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is an image of a shepherd taking his travel-weary sheep, tired sheep, sheep that have just run a, a figurative gauntlet, a long journey. They're famished. They're worn out. Maybe they've just escaped from some predators, run away from some people trying to take their life, some other animals trying to eat them, hurt them. And the shepherd takes them to these grassy meadows and waters to rest by. You know, I think in our minds, if we just pause for a second, I think in our minds there are places in our own lives that we find as our places of restoration and rest. Places where you find literal, physical respite and restoration after moments of hardship and chaos. You know, there's something about water that we find very peaceful and refreshing. I mean, obviously we need it to live, but just being by water, running water, the sound, the calmness, whatever. I mean, every night as Christine's going to bed, she sets a sound machine on her phone. I think it's running water. Rain. There it is. There it is. Streams, brooks, places of peace. You know, for you... Your place of rest could literally be a stream or a brook. I know we got a couple families out hiking right now. I'm sure they're hiking to bodies of water, right? Or maybe your place of rest is a figurative place of restoration. The place you go to find rest could be a good book, a good cup of coffee, Saturday hiking through the mountains, unplugging from technology for a couple of days. And whatever it is, your shepherd is the one who leads you there. You know, all those things that we tend to take for granted that, that fill our hearts with that rest we need, those are all gifts to, of God to us. He's leading us to those things, and he's given us those things out of his grace, his kindness. But even more importantly than physical, emotional rest is spiritual rest. You know, oftentimes our, our souls, they're in turmoil, Right? They're restless. You know, we see a chaos in our world, a chaos in our own lives, things just kind of spinning out of control. We need something more than just physical rest. We need, we need spiritual restoration. The whole notion here of the shepherd restoring our souls is the same language used throughout the Old Testament to describe returning something to its original state. And our shepherd understands that when we as sheep have wandered away or we've been attacked by the enemy that wants to do us harm or walk through some dangerous storm or sharp ravine, you know, metaphorically speaking, that the green pastures and still waters we need are the green pastures and still waters that come from being renewed in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty eight says the same thing. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, 
No, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. I'll find rest by the waters of Christ Jesus. And as he leads us and as he provides for us, as he restores us, as he cleanses us and renews us, he also enables us to walk in paths of righteousness for his glory. We don't obey to earn God's favor. We have God's favor, therefore we obey. You know, as we follow our shepherd, as we seek to go where he's leading us, we understand that the reputation of our shepherd is at stake, right? This implies that a lack of walking in the paths of righteousness leads to not glory, not renown for our shepherd. It brings shame upon his name rather than Delight in his name. You know, a good shepherd in the ancient world, he was marked by his or her ability to keep the sheep heading in the right direction. So as we live righteously under the guidance of the shepherd, our good shepherd, it makes our shepherd look beautiful and powerful and glorious because he's able to keep us from wandering, right? A shepherd that lets the sheep wander all over the place is not a good shepherd. So our righteous living, our walking on the paths of righteousness brings great glory to our good shepherd. It tells the world that he is good at what he does, at leading his people. And we follow him with joy because we love and we trust him that where he's leading us is somewhere good, somewhere for our good and his glory. So shepherd, image one, green pastures, still waters, paths of righteousness, image two, third image, a rod and a staff, a rod and a staff. This image communicates presence and protection, presence and protection of the shepherd. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These are the only active verbs of David in the entire psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will fear, I will walk. Yes, this picture of the valley of the shadow of death, it evokes in us thoughts or experiences of danger and difficulty and heartache and pain, even death itself. It's the valley of the shadow of death. Everyone, everybody in this room has walked that road in some form or other. It's a human, human universal truth in this text that everyone walks through valleys of the shadow of death. Every single person. But notice the response of the sheep. The sheep... Under the leadership of our Lord the Shepherd, they will fear no evil. But this is not fear, but this not fearing, when you don't fear something, it's an effect of a cause. Right? Let me give you an example. You can't cause fearlessness to rise up in you on your own, like in your own strength. You can't do it. Fear can come at any moment, but the ability to not fear has to be produced from a cause, something greater than the fear, right? Something that causes you calmness and peace. So maybe you have a fear of water, but your fear is alleviated by a strong boat. 
Maybe you have a fear of snakes, but your fear is alleviated by them being in cages at the Birmingham Zoo, right? Your fearlessness comes from a cause. It's the effect of something greater than the fear that keeps the fear at bay. You know, all of us have a tendency to fear when we walk through valleys and we begin to face our own mortality. We all do. All of us. You know, maybe we've walked through cancer, disease, illness. Maybe you've walked through a loved one having dementia or Alzheimer's. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you've walked through family turmoil and strife. Relational valleys of shadows of death. Abusive relationships, wayward kids, and faithful spouses. I don't know. I don't know. But we have had fear. All of us know fear. But David says that though he walks through those valleys, he will fear no evil. Why? Because the shepherd is with him. The effect of fearlessness comes from the cause of the shepherd's presence. That the shepherd is able to alleviate those fears because he is greater than those fears. You know, the only follower of God to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone was Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was alone in the valley of the shadow of death so that you and I would not have to be alone in the valley of the shadow of death. It's the love of the shepherd. You know, a sheep can find, uh, the sheep find courage in the presence of the shepherd, specifically looking at our image here, with his presence to protect us with the rod and the staff. Now, this image of the shepherd's rod and staff, this was this like hooked stick. I mean, you know, you've seen it. This hooked stick that was intended to guide and to lead and to protect the sheep. You know, sheep were helpless animals. They depended entirely on the shepherd for their defense. And they literally can't even fight for themselves. You know, oftentimes a shepherd at night, he would lead the sheep into an alcove of a rock, like a cave, and the shepherd would lay himself across the entranceway of the cave so that the predator would have to come through the shepherd in order to get to the sheep. And the shepherd would rise when a predator would come, and he'd take that rod and the staff in his hand, and he would fend off those predators that seek to do the sheep harm. I mean, just think about that picture, just the selflessness that comes with being a shepherd. You know, the danger the shepherd puts himself in to be present with, with and protect the sheep. You know, our minds, this side of the cross, again, we can't help but think about our Lord Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, the ultimate expression of God with us. His presence, he literally became flesh and dwelt among us. He's present, he came to be with us, his presence with us. And then when he leaves, he sends the Holy Spirit to be with us. And he is our good shepherd. He has not lost nor will lose any of his sheep. But he's willing, to, he's willing and does lay his life down for the protection of the sheep. Protection from sin and from death and from the grave. And as we walk through valleys of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for the Lord is with us. His presence is with us and his protection is over us. Fourth, fourth image. Table and a cup. A table and a cup communicate the truth that our God provides places of security and belonging. Security and belonging. Verse 5. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So the language here between verses 4 and 5, it shifts a little bit. You know, our providing shepherd now becomes a gracious host. You know, he lays out this banquet for us as his honored guest when danger is literally surrounding us. You know, in the ancient Near East, according to the customs of the people, hosts of honored guests were obligated to protect their guests at all costs. They were responsible for the safety of their guests. Therefore, those in the host house, they felt safe and secure, knowing that their protection was literally at the top of the list of their host's priorities. And you think about how, verse, just verse 5, it just sounds, uh, sounds kind of crazy, this whole banquet notion with all these enemies surrounding us. I mean, the Lord is our gracious host. He looks at us as his honored guests, his people, and he sees our enemies surrounding us. It's kind of like we come up to the door and we knock. You know, he's like expecting us, but we have like all these people trying to harm us, like following us close behind and kind of knock. And he's like, hey, hey, I was expecting you. You know, he doesn't, as most of us would do. I mean, if somebody comes and knocks on my door and I see hordes and hordes of enemies coming after you, I don't know if I'm letting you in my house because I don't know if I want to be responsible for your protection at that moment. The Lord doesn't say, hey, 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 enemies all around you, enemies all around you. You need to turn around and fight them off before you can come in. You need to start warding off those enemies because those enemies, they're putting my own family, my own household at risk here. So you need to figure it out and then come and knock on my door, ring the doorbell when they're all gone. No, he doesn't do that. It's actually the exact opposite. You know, when our enemies are all around us, the Lord, he looks at us and he says, hey, you come on in. You sit down at my table. I've laid out a spread for you. I've been expecting you. You feast, you eat, you drink. Don't worry about the surrounding enemies. That's my responsibility now. I'm your host. You're safe here. You're protected here. Take some drink for your cup. Take some oil for your head. Take more than you need. Rest and enjoy this banquet. And we look at our lives and we see our enemies surrounding us on every side. Maybe, maybe literal, definitely metaphorical. We see these enemies, enemies of the unknown, enemies of despair, of heartache, of distress, of pain, of death itself. Enemies that would love nothing more than to rob us of joy in life. And our gracious host, our shepherd, the Lord, he says, I've got it. You feast. You rest. And we've talked about tables before here and just the significance of tables. You know, tables in our houses that communicate places to belong, places of family, places of intimacy. And I think about this table we're seated around with the Lord in, this, in his house, in this banqueting hall. It's a place of belonging, of family. You know, people don't sit around your table by accident. You invite them in. They're there on purpose. They're experiencing a hospitality because you want them to know you. 
You're inviting them into your space, to your home. And the Lord, our gracious host, has invited us to his table, this place of belonging, of intimacy, of knowledge, of invitation. And we find comfort and refreshment by way of our gracious, by, of his gracious hand. And then last, fifth image here. It's the image of a house. It communicates the truth of our response, and it's of communion and worship. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord. You know, this uh, Old Testament temple where one come and offer sacrifices and praise and worship to Yahweh, to the Lord. It's the final destination for those whose shepherd is the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, the God of the Bible. You know, we dwell, we live in his presence for all of our days. And for all of our days, we will worship him. We will honor him. We will praise him. We'll find communion with him. And this idea of goodness and mercy following us, you know, all the days of our lives, the, it's a beautiful summary statement of the entirety of the Bible. You know, that, that verse, the, the word used for uh, the idea of goodness and mercy following us could be better translated, goodness and mercy is pursuing us. It's running after us. It's not just following like some creeper. It's coming after us. It's running after us. The word for mercy there, we've talked about this last week. Talked about the Hesed love of God, the steadfast love of God, the covenant love of God. It's this, to quote Jesus' storybook Bible, the unbreaking, never-ending, always and forever love of God towards his people. That's the kind of love that's following us, that's pursuing us all the days of our lives. It reminds us of the shepherd that leaves the 99 to pursue the one, right? That's what I think about. It's this proactive love. I mean, how much of the love in our churches is reactive love? We demonstrate our love when someone needs it. Why don't we be proactive in our love? Let's love before people need it, before they're in crisis. Let's be pursuing them with the covenant love of God before they need to be reminded of it in their forgetfulness. And this process of pursuit has been going on since Genesis 3. You know, Adam and Eve hiding in bushes. We've talked about this. Shame, guilt, fear. After committing the first sin, God's the one who comes after them, who pursues them, calling out to them, where are you? It's the pursuit of the love of God that calls them out of darkness and into light. Throughout the Old Testament, God would pursue his covenant people with this Hesed love through using prophets and priests and some kings. Miracles, food and water in deserts, chariots of fire, angels, time and time again, God would pursue his people with his goodness and his mercy. And this pursuit obviously finds its apex and culmination in Jesus Christ. As God sends his very own son to show us the heart of our good shepherd, our gracious host, our final pursuer, we see it in Jesus. We see it in him. 
He is, he is the final image of God. In a psalm full of images, God sends us the best image of all, and it's his son, Jesus Christ. Provides a way of peace and provision and restoration and protection and guidance and belonging to those of us who have been her once and maybe are now very far away. Now we have the intimacy with the God of the universe. Intimacy with him. Where once we were estranged from him. So do you know him? Do you know the shepherd? Do you know the host? I invite you to know him if you don't. For those of us who do know him, I invite you to trust him even more. Even more. And my charge to those people that may not know Christ is to believe the gospel. And my charge to you that do know Christ is to believe the gospel. Believe the truth of Psalm 23. That the Lord truly is guiding us and leading us in ways that are good for us. Even if it doesn't feel good at the time. It's good for us as his people. He will guide us through the darkest of nights. And his guidance will eventually lead us to a final table where we will raise our glasses in that final feast and banquet of the Lord in his house forever. Let's thank the Lord now for his loving kindness towards us. Let's pray together. Father, remind us that you truly do lead us to places of rest and peace and restoration. That you lead us on these paths, even even in the moment we find ourselves in right now, the path may be rocky. The path may be filled with hazards. The path may be straight uphill. It may be painful to walk. But Father, at the end of that path is a place of rest. As Charles Spurgeon once prayed, Lord, help us to trust your heart even when we cannot trace your hand. I ask, Lord, that you give us the grace to believe and trust the heart of the shepherd, the heart of you. that you are for us. And may as we delight in you, may you continue to remind us that you delight in us. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.